Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available... On digital, Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Hello everyone, and welcome to today's very exciting Twitter space. We're faced with one of the most critical moments in crypto as, you know, big, one of the biggest exchanges, FTX, is imploding. We all know the details are still very vague, and the news is coming fast and furious. Uh, so to make sense of all this, we have uh, Coindesk Newsroom's uh, A-team uh, that will discuss the current status of the, this implosion and the contagion and everything in between. So to start it off, let's um, go around the room for a quick intro. So Nick, let's start with you. Hey folks, uh, my name is Nick. I am the managing editor for global policy and regulation here at Coindesk. Basically, I cover regulatory issues and things like bankruptcies, of which a certain major crypto company filed for one a, just a few days ago. Okay, so Tracy. Hi everyone, I'm Tracy. I'm the deputy managing editor. Um, I have been covering FTX for a while and wrote that story about the housemates that. Um, Got a little misinterpreted, but uh, I'm glad everyone seemed to enjoy the story. That was a spicy one. Aeon, yeah, Cheyenne. I can go. Cheyenne, go, yeah. Hi, everybody. I'm Cheyenne. Uh, I work on Nick's team, so I also cover regulation, bankruptcies, and sometimes crime. And, uh, you know, that, that throws this into my jurisdiction, too. <laughs> Perfect. David and Sam, um, we, we can keep you off for now and you can come in whenever you're in. Uh, you can enter yourself. But uh, let's get started. Um, let's, let's recap and see what, what happened with this. Uh, um, I'll, I'll throw, throw the mic to uh, Nick. Nick, you want to give us a quick rundown? I don't know if we have time for a quick rundown, let alone a detailed one. It has been a very interesting, I was going to say week, but really it's been about four days. So I believe we uh, held a space just one week ago talking about what was going on with FTX at the time. And at that point, it was really just, uh, you know, our colleague Ian Allison had reported the balance sheet for Alameda, finding it had a lot of FTT tokens. Uh, we were talking about, I think, the finance non-binding letter sent to acquire FTX. And uh, that was it. That was where we left things. And um, I think it's fair to say uh, quite a few events have happened since. So... Binance walked away from the deal, obviously. Uh, FTX filed for bankruptcy on Friday morning. By Friday afternoon, people were trying to figure out whether or not they would be able to withdraw their funds. FTX US briefly suspended withdrawals, then you know, resumed them. Still unclear why. On Friday night, FTX was hacked, and a couple hundred million dollars worth of crypto were taken out of FTX's wallets and diverted to you know various other locations. FTX itself, at some point, to cotton onto this and said that they had you know, started begun, you know, moving their funds to cold storage to try and keep them secure. And that brings us to Saturday, really, when probably not the weirdest, but one of the weirdest things to me at least happened, the Securities Commission of the Bahamas, i.e. the you know, equivalent to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, announced on Twitter that it had not ordered FTX to allow people, local residents, to withdraw their funds. This was contradicting something that FTX had said several days earlier when it had begun allowing Bahamas residents specifically to withdraw their funds. Now, the allowance of a specific jurisdiction led to a weird black market where people in the Bahamas who had accounts were creating NFTs that people outside the Bahamas were buying, and they were buying them for the value of their FTX accounts with the 
implicit understanding or explicit understanding really that if you were creating one of these NFTs, you could, in lieu of the uh, NFT, you would be able to get access to the crypto fund. It was pretty weird. Saturday night, nothing really happened. Sunday, nothing really happened. Probably the next interesting thing, I think, happened on Monday when we finally got the first in-depth detailed bankruptcy filing, I should say. So normally in a bankruptcy, when companies file, you get a top sheet basically that says, you know, it's basically just checking off boxes saying, here's how many creditors we think we have. Here's the range of assets. Here's the range of liabilities, things like that. That's what we got on Friday. It took them several days, really until last night to file any kind of narrative documents saying, okay, here's exactly what happened as we got through this process. And the short version is it was chaos. I think that's probably a good word to describe really the last two weeks. But uh, in last night's filing, FTX lawyers, said that Sam Bankman fried had tried to find funding for the company up until Friday morning, stepped aside at 4.30 p.m. when they brought on a veteran CEO of you know, previous insolvencies, John Ray III. Uh, you might know him from Enron. He joined, I believe, in 2008, so several years into the bankruptcy process, but you know, to help kind of liquidate the company at the time. John Ray III himself on, in the filings said that, you know, a lot's happening. They're still trying to figure out what exactly is going on with the assets. He alluded to the cyber attack on Friday, did not really put, you know, provide any detail as to what happened, although people seem to think that it was an insider attack, and some people are implying that it is Bankman-Fried. We haven't seen any evidence to suggest that specifically, but uh, yeah, it has been an eventful couple days. To say the least. I love it that you, you put in uh, chaos, FTX, and Enron in one sentence. That's, that's basically what it is. Before we go forward, I, I forgot that I, I should have introduced myself. My, I'm, uh, my name is Aaron Asher. I'm managing editor uh, at Coindesk as well. Sam, um, you, I, I haven't, we haven't introduced you. So you, do you want to add something to the uh, conversation on, on the rundown? Yeah, thanks, Aaron. Hey, everybody. I'm Sam. I'm a technology reporter at Coindesk, which basically means um, over the past week's reporting, um, it seems like, on financial fraud. The, I, I think Nick gave a really fantastic rundown right there. He's much more knowledgeable on the bankruptcy side of things. Um, I'd say one of the interesting things that I've been tracking from the tech end has been what this means for decentralized finance protocols. And that's something that I hope we'll be able to get into over the course of this talk. So it's not just like these centralized entities that are impacted. We'll talk about this contagion effect that came from FTX, but it's also some decentralized finance or ostensibly decentralized finance applications that are starting to feel, you know, the brunt of the impact from this FTX failure, fraud, disaster, whatever you want to call it. Um, so yeah, I'm glad to, you know, be joined by all these incredible colleagues. Um, maybe Nick, if you wanted to kind of like take it back to the whole bankruptcy thing. Sure. Yeah. So FTX filed for a chapter 11 bankruptcy rather than a chapter seven. The main difference for you know, the purpose of this conversation, Chapter 11 is a reorganizing, restructuring type of bankruptcy. The company expects to survive this process, and uh, they hope that by securing bankruptcy protections for a little bit, they can you know, figure out the funding situation, they can figure out the liquidity situation. Chapter 7 bankruptcy is more of a liquidation bankruptcy. That's the point where you're like, all right, we're going to shut this down, sell everything, try and you know, pay back whoever needs to be paid back. Now, the thing about this bankruptcy is apparently FTX is a little bit in the hole. It, you know, we've seen uh, reporting, we've seen questions. The big question seems to be just how much uh, FTX actually has in terms of assets. A Financial Times report from the weekend suggested that it has less than a billion dollars in assets at this point, looking at an Excel sheet that Sam Bankman fried apparently put together, uh, which was, how do we put this delicately, arguably less than up to standards. If you don't follow Matt Levine at Bloomberg, he put a pretty decent summary together, I think, over the week, uh, on Monday, excuse me. Um, and by that, I mean, he appeared to have lost his mind reading this thing. Uh, as really did we all. I enjoyed, like, the poorly labeled internal account. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's, a, there's a, a, an item on that spreadsheet that says poorly labeled internal account, which is exactly how all the big four accounting firms do it, of course, for those of you listening who might think I'm being serious there, no, do not desist. Yeah, so the bankruptcy process is ongoing now. We're gonna, it's gonna take a while to see where they go. I don't think we've seen any hearings scheduled yet on you know, the talk about the bankruptcy or to you know, kind of opening procedures. What we do know is that 
FTX filed bankruptcy alongside something like 100 subsidiaries. Originally, it was more than 130. But again, speaking to the chaos of the situation, a lot of those companies weren't actually part of the FTX umbrella. And they were quite surprised, to put it mildly, to discover that they had you know, filed for bankruptcy, considering that they had no idea that they were even involved. So as of right now, or at least as of around 11.30 p.m. or so last night, there were 101 cases, let's say, in the PACER court database system for each of the various subsidiaries, related companies, so that's FTX, that's Alameda Research, the Quant Shop, also tied to Sam Eggman-Fried and his group. There's Clifton Bay Investments, investment firm. There's various international subsidiaries of FTX. So I saw FTX Japan, FTX Singapore, et cetera. And one of their first orders of business is to try and basically jointly administrate all of these cases as a single bankruptcy to the extent possible, because obviously they don't really want to be in court for 101 different bankruptcy cases. A judge is going to have to rule on that. The other, I think, important detail, we still don't have a firm sense of the actual assets and liabilities that FTX is going to claim. They have not put that in any court documents yet that I've seen. What they did claim is that they have anywhere between 100,000 100,000 to a million creditors, uh, looking at the different subsidiaries, different companies scattered across the world. So it's going to be a complex bankruptcy. You know, I think quite a few of us have been covering the bankruptcies of Celsius and Voyager. We've been looking at the Hodlnot case in uh, Singapore. We've been looking at, you know, some of these international processes. But I, this genuinely so far is shaping up to be one of the most complex, uh, you know, that I've certainly seen in crypto. I agree with that, Nick. Uh, it's it's very it's the web of the situation is just everywhere, and it's it's very complex to untie them. Tracy, I want I want to uh, go back to you, and uh, I want to talk about the human interest of this story. Could you give us a little bit of details of that of that side of story? The story was really just about Sam and uh, showing how he ran his company. And I don't know if you guys like to follow the gossip account Autism Capital. Uh, you know they post anonymous DMs that they get um, that, you know, some claiming to be former employees, but take some of the stuff with a grain of salt. We don't know if it's actually a former employee. And so it's just, I think some of the sentiments in the article have been supported by these anonymous accounts that have been, you know, submitting employee, employee DMs. And so he has, Sam, Sam, you can just look at the way he kind of he, ha- he has a very tight inner circle that, that he trusts. He lives with his co-founder, Gary Wang, who is the FTX, um, I think, head of technology. And then there's also Nishad, who is also an executive, and Caroline, who is this, you know, now the solely CEO of Alameda. And they kind of all live together in this penthouse in the Bahamas. And that's certainly not something you see every day um, when it comes to just corporate governance. And so I thought that was quite interesting. And um, Sam and Caroline previously dated, and also um, the 10 people in the house, uh, four of them were coupled off, and and everybody in the house essentially worked at FTX or Alameda. And so so that kind of also begs the question, like, you know, everybody was trying to figure out who knew, like, you know, there are many other FTX executives, did they know about the what looks like fraud that's been going on um, and who even in the inner circle knew could, could have been possible that some of the housemates didn't know. So, so that's still an open question that we, we don't know. Go ahead. Yeah. The other thing that I'll say about Sam that I've kind of noticed in the past couple of days is he is a little bit erratic and uh, we, we can talk about his tweeting or his posting and um, we, nobody really uh, under. I mean, maybe some people have theories on why he did that, but, um, you know, I think there's a frustration among people to just, you know, Sam, like, just admit it, like, just, just come clean, stop, you know, playing these games. And from my experiences with him, I think he, he never says anything with certainty. Like, like I might ask him something, you know, a tip that I heard, and then he'll be like, eh, maybe like, like, I think that's just kind of the way he talks as a person and the way he thinks like he is never, ever like he never really expresses a hundred percent certainty in anything. And I think that can be a reason why he he's creating so much frustration. People just want him to, you know, come out and say, Hey, I did it. You know, this is what I did. 
Um, and, and he still seems to be in this mode where, he, where he's kind of playing games and, and maybe he thinks there's a chance he can move. Like, I, I actually don't know. But um, that is something that I've noticed about Sam. That, Tracy, that's interesting because, as you said, erratic tweets. I, w- I want to know the legal uh, implications of that. I, I want to throw it back to Nick for a second. Nick, what, what happens with, because obviously they're going through uh, bankruptcy and, and there's a lot of legal implication for whatever anyone does that's related to FTX. What happens with these tweets? <laughs> um, so uh, over the last couple of days, I've spoken to a number of attorneys, including former federal prosecutors, former uh, officials with very, you know, one or another regulatory agency. And all of them unanimously agreed that Sam should probably stop tweeting and, you know, not give interviews to news organizations, not talk to the public. Basically, what's going to happen for sure? We already know that there are federal, state, and international investigations of FTX, the various affiliated companies, and Sam Bankman-Fried himself. We know that the companies are in touch with these regulators, that they've been communicating back and forth uh, because they said that in one of the bankruptcy filings. We know that federal regulators are reaching out to other companies involved. For example, you know, Coindesk reported last week that Binance has received attention and interest from law enforcement agencies asking about FTX. We know that uh, Paxos, the stablecoin issuer, uh, put out a statement saying that it had been asked by regulators to freeze accounts tied to FTX. So we know that there are these investigations ongoing. And if they do bring cases, if these investigators say, all right, well, we have enough to charge uh, you know, FTX or SAM or, you know, one of these companies with some kind of criminal or civil action. Uh, I would imagine these tweets are going to be part of the exhibits. And that's not to speak, you know, that's not even getting into the fact that uh, investors are probably going to sue, whether those are FTX's investors, Alameda's backers, or even the customers of these companies. There's probably going to be lawsuits. People are going to try and recover, you know, whatever funds they can. And once again, you know, there are tweets where Sam came out and said, oh, all the assets are fine. You know, nothing's going to happen. Uh, he deleted that, you know, those tweets, but that was before revealing that there was a, you know, quote unquote liquidity crisis at FTX. He said that FTX US is, you know, not affected by what's going on with uh, FTX Global. And that came a day before FTX US was added to the bankruptcy file. Well, you know, FTX US was on the bankruptcy filing alongside everyone else. He tweeted that, you know, there's not going to be any suspension of withdrawals for FTX US. And then FTX US did, in fact, suspend withdrawals, although, you know, temporarily. So there are a lot of things. And the lawyers I spoke to said that, you know, one of the questions that people suing or people investigating FTX and the executives are going to ask, you know, what did the company, what did the people involved tell investors, tell users, tell, uh, you know, the general public? And were those statements that, you know, something that people could, you know, assume that they wouldn't be able to rely on. Or in other words, you know, if I'm an FTX US customer, could I rely on a tweet saying FTX US is fine to make a decision about whether or not I want to withdraw my money? And if the answer is yes, then okay. And now here we are in a case where uh, he's still tweeting. He tweeted today, he tweeted earlier, a couple hours ago, I think, less than, you know, 12 hours ago. He's still tweeting that, uh, you know, here's what he wants to do. He's still talking to reporters. It's just very fascinating. Um, you know, some of the lawyers I spoke to got quite colorful in their language of explaining, you know, how bad they think it is. So one of them described it as a nightmare. One of them said, uh, you know, they probably should be talking to his lawyers first. Thanks, Nick. Um, very, very interesting. Uh, I think David uh, is able to finally join us. David. Um, Please introduce yourself, and um, I want to I want to throw it back to you uh, to talk about the contagion that's uh, happening because of the situation. Um, there's a question uh, that what happens to the what happens to BlockFi and you know uh, all the people that were that had exposure to FTX. Um, well, what's your thought? Uh, yeah, hi, thanks. Uh, sorry for the delay. Had some uh, technical issues. Thanks, Elon. My name's David Morris. I'm the chief columnist for CoinDesk. Um, on the, I guess those are, those are, I think, two separate questions uh, to some extent. Um, the, uh, I mean, contagion is uh, scary because you never know where it's going to crop up, right? Uh, I mean, it's a disease that moves around invisibly because we're talking about, in a lot of cases, 
uh, debts and mutual obligations that are not public and people can conceal for a while, which is how we got to this in the first place. So um, for, for those who know the timeline, uh, at least speculatively, what people believe at the moment is that a lot of the illiquidity um, that, uh, or whatever you want to call it, that Alameda experienced uh, was rooted in the Luna collapse, which was almost six months ago at this point, if not maybe a little longer, and they were able to hide it this long. Um, and so when you have this echoing chain of problems and they aren't immediately public, um, it's really hard to say how many shoes there are and when the last one will drop. And um, we thought after, you know, three arrows that that was the end, um, but clearly not. And so that is, uh, I mean, I wish I could offer a more definitive answer, but that's simply the nature of the beast that we don't know. We, we're talking about a $10 billion balance sheet that Alameda has said it uh, loaned all over the place for VC funding, among probably a lot of other silly things. Um, and uh, so we'll, we'll have to really take a wait and see attitude, I think, um, as to where that's gonna, gonna crop up. As far as recovery, um, I mean, I'll, I'll venture to say I'm not optimistic about very much. Um, and, and I really feel, especially for people who have money in BlockFi, because obviously that's a second order effect. Um, but uh, yeah, so, so the contagion thing is really what we have to keep an eye out for. Obviously at Coindesk, we're working to figure out where those lines lead. Yeah, sounds good. That's a very complicated uh, process. Um, Sam, uh, Sam Kessler, I, I want to go back to you about uh, that the, the DeFi part of that you, you want to talk about. I, I, so I have two questions for you, or uh, two topics is that, uh, let's talk about the DeFi. Is it, how does it in, impact the DeFi space? And plus, can you talk a little bit about the proof of reserve that everyone now is talking about? Yeah, let's tackle the, the first part of that, you know, contagion effect, how it affects DeFi. So just to kind of define some terms here. Most people in the space, you'll forgive me um, uh, if you already know this. Um, so there's decentralized finance, which is the idea of using blockchains, smart contracts, which is programs on a blockchain to codify interactions between two parties without there being somebody in the middle. So the idea is I could swap something to David, who just spoke, without actually having to trust somebody like SBF in the middle. That's DeFi. Then there's centralized platforms like what FTX was, like Coinbase, like Kraken, like Binance, that custody um, crypto that have their own front ends and also back end services that hold crypto for you, hold your keys, blah, blah, blah. Um, many of the platforms that we saw that collapsed that were able to take user funds, um, I'm talking about not only FTX, but Celsius, Voyager, people who are lending out funds behind the scenes without users knowing, those were centralized platforms. They'll call themselves centralized, decentralized finance, which is a misnomer. It's just centralized platforms. So, um, and you asked what the impact was on decentralized finance. Like, how can there be an impact if these are centralized platforms? Well, I think it's important when we're talking about this contagion effect to recognize that the SBF empire was massive. And many of those high yields that we saw coming out um, over the course of DeFi summer, but then afterwards over the past couple of years, came from um, entities like FTX that poured money into um, platforms and in almost like a, an Uber sort of a way, they would, they would basically pay out users um, I, is the most simple way to, to explain it. Almost like marketing spend to inflate yields. There's way more complicated stuff going on behind the scenes, market manipulation, other stuff. But anyway, the reason why this contagion um, is also impacting DeFi is because FTX um, and Alameda, that research shop that Coindesk um, exposed the, the balance sheet of um, that SBF also controlled, held a lot of tokens for these ostensibly decentralized finance platforms. They not only held a lot of tokens that they could have theoretically used to market manipulate, dump on the market, yada, yada, but they also... Um, particularly in the Solana ecosystem, were some of the chief builders behind these, again, decentralized protocols. So that's why specifically in Solana right now, but beyond that, we're seeing some of these DeFi platforms in addition to the centralized entities like FDX starting to crumble because we you know, um, can't trust um, their code bases as much anymore because of those the people who hold the keys to change them. Um, I'm thinking about Serum. Um, you can Google that. Um, Danny Nelson, who was here a bit ago, um, one of our great colleagues wrote a great piece on that. It's a Solana DeFi ecosystem that FTX was a part of building, blah, blah, blah. That's one that um, kind of collapsed. Uh, and maybe I, I, I can, or it didn't collapse, but it, it's not doing too well. But proof of reserves is basically the idea. Um, and, and I'll try to be quick here um, and really dump, like, 
breeze through this. Proof of service is the idea that, hey, we didn't actually know what FTX had. They had some sort of audits. They would not actually, um, we can't trust all the auditors. I'm not actually as well-versed on exactly how proof of reserves works, but it's essentially making transparent exactly the wallets and the contents of the wallets that belong to these reserves. So we don't just have to take their word that they're backing things one-to-one because that's what fell apart with FTX. They weren't actually backing things one-to-one. If we had proof of their reserves, we would have known that that was the case. So now you're seeing this big push for proof of reserves where we actually see proof that the money is there, but that's also not a fix-all because people can like put money in and then take it right out, um, you know, right when, you know, the, the proof needs to be shown. Um, it, it's, again, like all of this, way more complicated, but I'm taking precious airtime from my, um, you know, uh, the journalists here, so. No, yeah. that's that's a very good uh, explanation, Sam. Um, I, 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 wa- I, want to, I want to open the um, floor up for questions. Uh, so if you have any questions, please request uh, to speak, and I'll uh, enable that. Uh, but before that, I, this is a very, very, very broad question is that, what happens now? Obviously, the to to tradfi people and ev- everyone outside of crypto, uh, that the trust level has obviously gone down. Um, how, what what happens beyond this? I, I'd like to speak to that, Anne, if I would, if I can. Sure. Yeah. I I think the the way that I we have to think about this is there's a difference between what we would like to happen and what probably will happen, um, and you know it, it depends perhaps on. on how deep you are in the crypto ecosystem and how long you've been paying attention to these technologies and and what about them really matters. Um, But, you know, for those of us who have been through previous crashes, whether it was the ICO bubble of uh, 2018 or even going back to Mt. Cox, um, it's the same thing over and over again for almost a decade at this point. You know, we talk about self-custody um and trying to get people to actually use the real underlying technology and the problem the fundamental problem with something like um ftx and uh some parallel entities is that they're training people to speculate rather than to use the technology and when it really comes down to it the bigger problem still is that when you enable that level of speculation, you get a distorted viewpoint of how big the demand for the technology itself actually is. Um, and so what I'm talking about basically is financialization and putting forward valuations that is not based on what's happening right now. Um, and that's how you get huge bubbles. That's how you get extreme fluctuations like the run-up that we saw that I'm sure has taken a lot of people out when they bought the top that looked like it was 69,000. And now we know basically that 69,000 was not a real number for Bitcoin. Um, and, and so, you know, ideally what you want in this situation when it's an experimental technology, it's something that we don't have a good sense of the actual demand for long-term if we're being perfectly honest. And so you, you really want people to actually be focused on using this. And honestly, the fewer speculators in the space uh, at this stage, maybe the healthier. Now that, that is, I think, uh, what you might want. The the reality is that this is about a three-year cycle. Um, and part of the cycles that we talk about with prices in crypto have to do with exactly this kind of bust and how long it takes for people to honestly forget history, forget what happened three years ago. Um, and so the reality is that unless there are, you know, really serious changes, um, we're going to see another FTX three or four, or maybe, you know, maybe we get lucky and it's five years from now but we're living in a world where financialization dominates um, and the opportunity for ridiculous gains drives people to do things that have no basis in reality. Um, so, you know, we, we have to decide which of those futures we want um, as an as a industry, as a technology, whatever you want to call it. Um, so, so those are the options on the table, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you, it, regardless of what you say about crypto, you can take out human nature uh, out of the equation uh, where, where people can make uh, tons of money by just buying some shitcoin, uh, and that obviously brings in greed and uh, you know everything else follows after that. Um, but it's good to good to know that you know it's, it's a cycle and that we, we, if we shake the tree enough, get the speculators out of it, get, have the real people build and uh, you know have help the space uh, uh, mature. I want to I want to talk about the fallouts a little bit more. Um, so, what? Who will be wiped out? Who? Who are the people that will be wiped out? We don't have to name any names, but you know, 
Uh, what kind of uh, it's some some people are saying we have uh, you know forty percent funds with FTX or uh, or FTT. Uh, we have uh, you know uh, it's only ten percent exposure. But um, what happens to them? I mean, I can jump in for a beginning just to start an answer. But right now, it you know we really don't know because a huge part of it is going to be dependent on a what assets FTX actually has that are actually worth anything, right? So you know, for example. If FTX decides to list its pile of FTT tokens as an asset, not to be mean, but it probably isn't going to be worth a lot. Um, I think you know there's other tokens tied to the you know FTX empire that have lost value over the last couple um, days, and those are also not going to be worth a lot. So, you know, a huge part of it is going to be depending on you know just what assets FTX actually has that are worth something that they can either liquidate or otherwise you know convert into a way of getting value back to its customers and its investors. Um, it's also going to depend a lot on the bankruptcy process itself, right? If the judge decides, okay, well, this company can, in fact, come back, we think that there's a chance, you know, which is kind of what we're seeing with Celsius or Voyager, then there's a whole process there where, uh, you know, these companies are, we're going to, you know, go through a process of watching the current leadership and the, you know, various experts that have been hired to you know, try and recover funds or to build up new, you know, either to venture business again or to, you know, find ways of generating revenue that FTX can use to pay people back. The other thing is if at some point they decide, okay, well, this is too far gone, we're going to just have to liquidate and sell. And then they can, you know, they might look to selling off parts of the, you know, subsidiaries, parts of the companies to try and generate revenue that way that you can send back to the um, investors. But it really is at this stage just too early to be able to say for sure what's going to happen. Right. I'll jump in. Um, yep. The most obvious first order, you know, group of people that are down bad are the people that have deposits in FTX that weren't able to get them out. And now the the gates are closed. If you were a hedge fund that traded on FTX and had hundreds of millions of dollars parked in there. Um, that sucks. You're not going to be able to see those funds um, because the bankruptcy process can take a while. And if you were a retail investor that was trading on FTX, same thing for you. Um, the second order is probably, uh, you know, any type of equity investor, you will probably see your equity wiped to zero. And so Sequoia, Paradigm, um, Ontario Teachers Fund, uh, SoftBank, all of those venture capitalists have seen their FTX equity get written down to zero effectively. Uh, same thing for employees. I think employees, uh, any of their FTX equity will probably be worth nothing. Um, if they had funds stored on FTX and weren't able to get them out, um, that they're in the same category as, as bucket one. Any other types of checks that, so FTX had a venture arm. And so, you know, they made investments in the Solana ecosystem. I think they were investors in Yuga Labs, the Board A project. Um, so any of the investments that they made in those companies, so what typically happens um, in venture capital is they might say, oh, we're going to invest you know, $10 million in this protocol, and they might give $5 million up front, and then another $5 million you know, a year from now when the project delivers on certain benchmarks. And so you know, that second $5 million might just never come. Uh, so that is that is also, um, you know, bad for the project and they would be affected. Uh, also Voyager and um, BlockFi, FTX was very involved in the um, acquisitions and it looks like BlockFi is seeing some issues. Maybe they had some of their deposits on the FTX platform and they can't get them out. Um, it sounds like BlockFi uh, was very heavily um, affected by FTX. And Voyager, I think I saw, I'm, I'm not positive about this, but I saw that they were kind of looking for another bidder. Um, and if, you know, and if they don't get bought up, they're going to be going through their own um, bankruptcy process. And so those are just, you know, the, the I mean, that's just like direct FTX exposure. And um, that's already, uh, I think, probably like tens of billions of dollars worth of exposure. I had a quick uh, follow-up on, uh, on David's comment. So specifically to the uh, point about, uh, about equity investors getting wiped out, 
I think it's really important to focus on the fundamental reason that basically all of this was enabled, which was that, you know, FTX had both equity investors from venture capitalists and then its token FTT, which acted in many ways as equity and most importantly, like equity was essentially created from thin air to track the value of the company. Um, and obviously there are some services that are tied to that and some discounts and things like that. But fundamentally, there's not really any existential reason for a centralized exchange to have any kind of utility token whatsoever. Um, and especially not to have one that has float, um, that they have uh, a, a, an amount of their uh, backing tied up in. I mean, this is a deep, deep reason for this crisis um, is the existence of the FTT token itself. Um, and I think that's an important lesson to to carry forward. I think Cheyenne had another comment she wanted to throw on. All I was going to say was that, yes, uh, Voyager is shopping for another buyer. Obviously, given the current situation, FTX is not in a position to make a $100 million acquisition. Uh, you know, a drowning person can't save somebody else. Um, and then to kind of, I don't remember if Nick was saying this or if Tracy was saying this, but something else we have to really be cognizant of in Chapter 11 is we don't know how much FTX has left. Um, and chapter 11 is a very expensive process. That's what we've been seeing in Celsius and in Voyager and in other crypto bankruptcies. I mean, they're going to continue to pay their executives. I'm sure John Ray is not a cheap hire. Um, they are going to continue to spend money and hire outside counsel. And, you know, lawyers are not cheap. So whatever they do have left, and, and that's a huge question, they're going to spend a lot of it. Oh, and I would also add that um, I think the Solana ecosystem is probably most impacted by the collapse of FTX. Uh, it's not only FTT that was a token that was created out of thin air. Um, Sam Bankman-Fried Bankman was also the co-founder of Serum, um, which was a Solana DEX. And I think Vita yes, Oxy, Maps, all of those um, Solana ecosystem shitcoins, essentially, that... that uh, that were on both FTX's and Alameda's balance sheet. We have we have um, two questions from the audience, so we're gonna answer those right after you. Okay, no, Cole. I just wanted to ask Ryan again. I know you know you've been covering a lot of the hearings for the Celsius and Voyager bankruptcies. What would you expect to hear from you know maybe the first couple hearings that I imagine we're gonna have on this FTX bankruptcy? Yeah, I mean, I think that. <laughs> That's that's a big question, right? But you know, when the when the Celsius bankruptcy process kicked off, a lot of what you have to start chapter 11 with is your plan for reorganization and you know, maybe I'm a pessimist, but that's just going to be rich hearing how a company that's apparently 10 to 50 billion dollars in the hole and reportedly spent customer funds, um, you know, what their plan for reorganization is. So, how do you fix something that's rotted from the inside? I, I don't know. So, but but that's what I would expect to hear when this starts is is what they say they're going to do to right the ship. All right, we had we had two questions. You can speak now. How's everybody? Thanks for having me up. Uh, thinking about Solana and the ecosystem and this exposure, or FTX's exposure to it. A couple of days ago, if not yesterday, I think nights and days are mashing into each other right now with everything going on. Released a, a statement with. Um, an accounting of FTX and Alameda's investments and holdings and token locks uh, over the next five to six years. I don't know if you guys had a chance to see that. It was the Solana Foundation that issued that deal. Unfortunately, we really need Danny Nelson here. Um, I believe his phone has decided that Twitter is not something he wants to deal with, so he's not here right now. But at least from he like the that he's coming. Oh, sorry. Oh, excellent. Sorry. Great. Yeah. So Danny is the best position to answer this, but at least from like the bankruptcy proceedings. Again, part of the you know the question right now is just what assets FTX has access to that it can liquidate quickly or at least you know through this process to make investors and its users whole. And if it doesn't have access to these funds, then uh, you know that's probably not great for the investors. It'll probably you know I imagine it's going to come up in the bankruptcy hearing as you know one of the listed assets. But beyond that, we really you know at this point we really just need to have a hearing. We actually. It would be nice if FTX were to, you know, figure out what its actual assets are. And that's one of the things that, you know, typically you get some sense of it. Even if you don't have a comprehensive list, you get some sense of it through the initial bankruptcy filings, but, um, or at least through the first hearing. But, you know, 
we haven't had either yet. We haven't seen any, you know, discussion of that. So this is like just oh, purely speculation, ahead, but I just have a feeling, you know, there, there was a leaked balance sheet by um, FT Alphaville put together what seemed like, you know, a quickly scrambled together uh, leaked balance sheet totaling FTX's assets and liabilities. And I think Sam tweeted that, you know, FTX was actually above water. They had more assets and liabilities. They actually had positive net net equity, but most of their assets were, were these illiquid shit coins. Um, they also have a bunch of locked Solana um, serum. And I think um, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some type of auction or over-the-counter transaction if these tokens are locked and say the unlock period is for the next, you know, like up to, you know, several years. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, say, the bankruptcy judge you know, held some type of bid. And maybe the Solonic Foundation could buy back those tokens at a discount, maybe another buyer, like a distressed hedge fund. Like, I actually think that might be, that that might not be a bad plan. But again, this is just be speculating. And I, I don't think we really have any precedent to look at. I'm going to throw this to uh, Danny. Danny, do you want to do a quick intro and then answer the question? Uh, sure, I can try to answer it. Don't know if I'll be able to fully, but uh, this is Danny Nelson. I'm the Solana reporter here at Coindesk. Um, on the topic of whether uh, bankruptcy would impact token lockup periods, I mean, I don't have a full answer to that question because I don't know the arrangement, the legal arrangement that came with the token sale, but presumably if the token lockup is hard-coded, then it would happen you know, as scheduled when it does. And at that point, those assets, more interestingly, would become part of the bankruptcy proceedings and liquidatable by the court or the liquidators. And so that's sort of part of a bigger question of what happens to maybe 50 million tokens, um, sold tokens over the coming months and years, because if uh, those are or aren't sold, that could have... Um, an impact on the market price. So that's sort of the bigger question. What happens to this mountain of soul tokens that are, are held by the, a bankrupt entity? I hope uh, um, that answers your question. I, we have one more uh, question because we're running out of time and we want to go to that. Yeah, no, um, just adding to the com complexity of just what was uh, being talked about. Another question I had, any of the Coindesk reporters ever had experience covering these bankruptcies of Celsius or Hodlnord or Voyager, is there ever been a situation where, you know, is it is it something in bankruptcy where you're, you're not allowed to essentially start to issue off funds or pay certain debts if you have a conscious and you know that you are about to file for bankruptcy? Is that a thing in Chapter 11? And if so, how how is this going to work with all the things that happened with the Bohemian residents over the weekend? Like, I just can't imagine the logistical nightmare this is going to be to try to claw back funds from people's, you know, these individuals all around the world. It's just, it just sounds like a massive headache. So I was just wanting some commentary uh, from anyone on stage who perhaps has some knowledge on this. Tran, I can start and you want to finish on that? Yeah, sure. So yes, there's definitely going to be some kind of clawback provision. What that will actually look like and if it is used, I think is going to be up to the judge. Um, but, you know, we actually did see this over the weekend when the Securities Commission of the Bahamas warned that, you know, they wouldn't have advised FTX to reopen withdrawals because of the clawback concerns. So to your question, yeah, that's definitely, I think, a real concern. And I honestly couldn't even begin to imagine what that might look like in practice because, um, yeah, it is going to be a very, very complex uh, situation where, um, you know, not only were you know, customers withdrawing their own funds. But as we mentioned before, there was this whole uh, black market situation where customers were trying to withdraw funds on behalf of others, where people were trying to use these loopholes to recover their own funds who were not necessarily based in the Bahamas. So um, I have to imagine that there's going to be uh, a lot of scrutiny around this and probably uh, time-consuming analysis and expensive analysis on how you could implement the clawback on that. But I honestly couldn't even begin to tell you you know what that would actually look like in practice yeah i mean i agree with nick i also think it's worth pointing out again that you know the 
Who's going to pay for that analysis? Well, whatever's left over at FTX. So, I mean, this is a very complicated process that could take a really long time. And, you know, we also don't know, you know, FTX spent a lot of money on a lot of different things. And what we don't know yet is where that money came from. So there's a chance that if we find out through the bankruptcy process that that was customer funds, there could be clawbacks in places even beyond what just happened in the Bahamas with residents withdrawing money through NFTs. So, you know, the scope of this is something that we just really don't know yet. All right. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Cheyenne. Uh, yeah, watch this space. Extremely complex, it sounds like it. Yeah, that's about, uh, that's about <laughs> describes what's going on. Uh, massively complex. Um, I have, uh, I have this, uh, I've been uh, thinking about this and I, I, this is probably uh, good for uh, David. Um, is this, a, is this an Enron moment or is it a Lehman Brothers moment for crypto? Um, yeah, I mean, those were, well, those are both each uh, incredibly complex frauds that, uh, so you can, you can kind of interpret it either way. Um, but I, I, I do want to focus, well, I'll just bring it back to my pet peeve, which is um, it, it is specifically an Enron moment in, in a very particular way, which is our current understanding, and you know, all of this remains to be verified, but our current understanding of at least part of the source of the whole is that um, Alameda was borrowing uh, from, uh, from FTX and then uh, essentially moving money around to uh, either subsidiaries or venture capital investments, which is the funniest part of all of this. Um, but again, the FTT token was at the core of all of it. It was either used as collateral or uh, directly as, you know, contributions to, to different organizations. And that's, it is exactly in its fundamentals, the core fraud that brought down Enron. Um, what Enron did to hide its debts uh, was to uh, collateral, use its own stock to collateralize subsidiaries that also uh, took on debt from the parent company. Um, so it, it, this is a crypto version of using a collateral or a, a, uh, an equity like instrument to, to hide your debts. Um, and uh, so that's just explicitly what this is. Um, if you start looking at it from a broader macro perspective, you can think about historically, you know, is it Lehman or Enron? That can be debated. But in terms of the, the exact details of the fraud, uh, it's Enron. Gotcha. I, I think uh, Sam has some uh, spicy take on this one. Yeah, yeah. Maybe to um, maybe not a spicy take on what David said, because I agree with um, all of it. But maybe to, to jump in and talk a little bit about some of the weirdness that we've seen on Twitter. Um, maybe some of you here in the space have followed. Um, we've seen some founders um, come out of the woodwork since all of this happened. And I, I'm curious to get other people here's take on that as well. So, so specifically, Do Kwan, the founder of Terra, has been airing his opinion on Sam Backman-Fried, FTX, Alameda in a bunch of spaces um, on, on Twitter. Um, he was on the Up Only podcast, blah, blah, blah. He was persona non grata for a very long time, continues to be in many corners of crypto because of the $60 billion Terra blow up that he was the founder of, even though it was a very different kind of situation than the fraud perpetrated by SBF, whether it was a fraud, um, many people think it is, but anyway, it's, it's a different kind of a thing. Then we have 3AC, which was um, a, a essentially like a, a venture firm that took money and then lost that money without telling people um, that it was being loaned out behind the scenes. It's a kind of confusing to explain, but really not because they, they did something in a different form, similar to, to SBF where they, you know, advertised something that they were doing. Um, they, they, they said money would be safe with them. And then behind the scenes, it simply was not, they were, you know, taking out loans um, against, um, well, sometimes not enough collateral, sometimes no collateral, and then they could not repay those loans. Suzu, Kyle Davies, the folks behind that are also now on Twitter for the first time in many weeks. So um, it, it's kind of wild. Um, so this is all to say um, one of the, the weird things that I've noticed is that these kind of, I guess you could call them the villains of the most recent season of crypto um, have used the um, SBF. Um, and I'm not saying they're villains, but uh, they, 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 they've definitely been categorized that way in the crypto Twitter consciousness. They've used the SBF failure and piled on to that SBF fraud to, to kind of, I guess, mount comeback campaigns, which I've just found 
pretty um honestly i found it pretty galling um and interesting and i i, I want to get other people's takes like it, do you think that they have any leg to stand on here and why do you think that this is the moment that they've selected to kind of come back and just start beating down on you know another founder oh i i have some thoughts on this um yeah it, it felt like after the collapse and all these people are coming out of the woodwork it was like crypto twitter has descended into official anarchy um at least that's what it felt like to me you know, Do Kwon Suzu and, you know, Celsius, they're they're probably the big winners in all of this and that their their crime on a relative basis now seems less bad. Um, I think Celsius is probably happy that, you know, FTX didn't bail them out like they did with BlockFi. Um, and, and they no longer have to deal with, you know, a new headache. Uh, and I think with Suzu and 3AC in particular, uh, if you look at some of the resurfaced gossip, Sue and Sam had beef from way back in the day. This is going back to like 2018, 2019 era. And I think they, you know, I, I think they have kind of a rivalry that has gone back several years. And now that both of them kind of, you know, fell or, or kind of, you know, both of them kind of stumbled upon hard times. They are now kind of, I don't know. I, I think, I think also Sue was claiming that, you know, Sam did some unsavory things that led to the AC's collapse. Like that is all just rumors, but it seems like Sue's is way more personal than some of the other ones. Just to really quickly, um, probably my last thing on this space to add on to that. Both Do Kwan and Suzu and Kyle have retweeted things insinuating that SBF contributed to their own collapses. Do Kwan um, has retweeted things that suggest that SBF led the attack on Terra's peg, but it, it, you know the the structure of Terra was still built by Do Kwan and people um, and and his team, and that's something you know worth keeping in mind here. And Suzu and, and Kyle Davies, like like you mentioned, Tracy, at least Sue, I've seen the the retweets. Um, have, you know, retweeted things insinuating and, and tweeted things explicitly um, stating that um, do, that uh, SBF played a direct role in their own collapse. And again, it's important to not lose sight of the fact, um, you know, without putting a value judgment on any of this, that um, it was ultimately um, their own, you know, loans that they took out that they could not repay. Um, and yeah, it, it's it's just important to, to view um, some of the stuff that we're seeing on crypto Twitter in that broader context. I mean, it also kind of goes along with stuff that we've been seeing, rumors going around that, you know, Binance is the reason for FTX's collapse. And, you know, it's totally possible that this was, that, that the run was triggered by CZ, but, you know, CZ was not responsible for FTX's balance sheet or the way that it treated customer funds. You know, you, you can't have a run on the bank if you hold assets one-to-one, -one, and they clearly didn't. You know, it looks like everyone's trying to uh, find the scapegoat. This was great. Thank you, everyone, for uh, joining the space. We will do more of this for sure. Um, and hopefully this was very uh, informative and helpful. Thank you, everyone. Have a good evening, morning, afternoon, wherever you are.